Well, welcome Gateway family and to those that are visiting with us this morning. We are so glad that you are with us to celebrate our Resurrection Sunday. Uh, one of the things that's uh, really encouraging to us is that we not only can uh, reach our own church family at this time, but there are others that are tuning in from different places around our country, even from around the world. And uh, if that's you, uh, we certainly want to welcome you to um, our church today. And uh, we want to invite you to jump in and participate in every way possible. And let me invite you to get your Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that's found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. And we're going to read through verse 34. And although the words will be on the screen for those who need it, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to use your Bibles to read along and keep them handy so that you're um, staying in the context of things. You're, you're going to understand some things before and after that may be helpful as we study today. But let's begin now, Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, I pro this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed 
a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Lord, help us today as we consider your word on this Resurrection Sunday, that we would be humble and teachable and ready to listen, and Lord, for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and to seal things and to bring conviction and clarity over uh, what your word teaches. Allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? Through Jesus Christ, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. It's always helpful as we think about the resurrection and we take a special day to focus on the resurrection to remind ourselves that what we call the Bible is actually a a book that has a storyline. It's a storyline about Jesus Christ. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but it all points to him. That's why we say that the word of God is Christ-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. And one of the tools I found really, really helpful, it's an outline that I've used for quite a while, just to simplify my understanding of the Bible, is this. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. There are prophecies that point to his coming. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. We find there him coming on the scene, and we see through stories and eyewitness accounts the things that he has done, the things that he has said. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. Jesus, of course, and his gospel is the basis of the preaching of the various apostles that go out and spread that gospel. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. This is why the epistles are so full of rich theology, explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment, who he is and what he's done and why it's important. And then in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. There's an anticipation for the Lord's return, for his coming again. And so wherever you might be in the Bible, it's always helpful to ask yourself, how is my text helping me to understand who Jesus is and what he has done? And when it comes to the resurrection, and in particular teaching and preaching about the resurrection, sermons typically fall into the following categories. Sermons about prophecies about the resurrection. Sermons about the story of the resurrection, in particular, the end of the gospel accounts where, as Ed did earlier in our service, read the events that took place and the things that were happening among the people as Jesus is crucified, as he's buried, and then once he he leaves the tomb. Then there are sermons about the facts of the resurrection, where both the Gospels and the Epistles shed light on what took place 
and the evidence or proof that it truly happened. Then there are sermons about the resurrected life that we can all have uh, if we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved to new life in Christ. We are saved to new realities. We are given joy and hope because of the resurrection. We could uh, listen to sermons about baptism because it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is a picture of what happens to us when we come to Him by faith. And then there are sermons on the implications of the resurrection, that one day every man and woman will be gathered before Christ for judgment. Now, as we come to Acts 17 and the passage that we have just read, we, we encounter Paul preaching in the Areopagus to a secular but inquisitive audience who've just heard about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, as a pastor, I don't usually preach someone else's sermons. That's not considered to be ethical. But in this case, because that sermon is in the text of God's Word, it's right for me to do so. In fact, it's extremely helpful for us, in particular, on this day. And so, friends, join with me now as we consider this passage. This passage can be neatly divided into three parts. The setting, in other words, what led up to the sermon, the actual sermon itself, what Paul says in his sermon, and then the significance or the implications of that sermon for his hearers and for us now as listeners. Now it's worth us knowing that the book of Acts is a record of the ministry of the apostles having been empowered by the Holy Spirit to spread the good news of Christ in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were to go out with this message. And what we're going to study today is one of those, those sermons that, that is preached as that gospel goes out. And although there are a few others, uh, the, the, the two main apostles we find in the book of Acts are Peter and then the apostle Paul. Now, Peter's primarily in the front end of the book. Paul is in the latter end of the book, beginning at chapter 13 in particular, and on. And just prior to Paul's arriving in Athens, some things take place. And this is found at the beginning of chapter 17, and it's worth just identifying and noting this. He goes to Thessalonica, where he's preaching, set the city in an uproar with a mob of jealous Jews then chasing him and trying to kill him. And so he escapes Thessalonica. And then he goes off to another town called Berea. And while he is in Berea, he's doing the same thing. He is preaching, he's reasoning, he's teaching. And it's received very well. There's fruitful ministry that takes place. But these Jews from Thessalonica who are still chasing after him find him in Berea. And so he has to leave by the sea, we're told. But what, what the first 15 verses of chapter 17 tell us is that Paul's ministry was turning the world upside down. In other words, the message of Jesus Christ crucified, his death, burial, and resurrection was causing a stir wherever that message went. And so this is the backdrop to what happens now in Paul's encounter with the people in Athens. He's preaching the gospel and what we'll find is that his sermon, at its core, is about Jesus and the resurrections. And friends, as we study this text today, 
we would do well, we would all do well to pay attention to the serious implications of the resurrection. We would all do well to pause and to consider what Paul is saying here by virtue of the Holy Spirit through his words to his audience and consider it for ourselves and take it to heart and then ponder it and believe it and live by it. Friends, telling the story about the resurrection is good. We should do that. Giving the facts about the resurrection is extremely helpful. It brings clarity. Connecting the resurrection to passages that predict the resurrection is incredibly powerful. I'm sure you understand that. But friends, if we don't deal with the implications of the resurrection, we might miss the point of the resurrection. And so this morning, we want to look at the curiosity about the resurrection, the preaching of the resurrection, and then ultimately the response to the resurrection. So let's begin by looking at what I'm calling the curiosity about the resurrection. Now we need to work our way through these verses to see how this curiosity is aroused. And so we'll look at verses 16 through verse 20 by asking and answering four questions. I mean, here are the, quickly the four questions. What does Paul see in Athens? What does Paul feel in Athens? What does Paul do in Athens? And then how did the people respond? Now this is, this is before he even gets to his sermon. So the question now is, what did Paul see in Athens? Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw the city was full of idols. Now you have to remember that, that Athens was a magnificent city. It was known for its beautiful buildings and its architecture. It was full of culture and magnificent art. It would have been a stunning city to go into. The Greek pantheon and most of the other impressive buildings were temples to the pagan gods. And even though the heyday of Athens may have passed already, it was still considered to be the central and intellectual, the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. But friends, that is not what catches Paul's eye. What he sees is a city full of idols. And if there's a city full of idols, then it's a city that is full of idolatry. One of the ancients said, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man because there were so many idols across the city. So that's what Paul sees. What does Paul then feel in Athens as he sees all this idolatry? Well, it says his spirit was provoked within him. This word provoke can mean grieved or distressed. Now in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word is used to describe how God felt when his children made a golden calf. So this is not an image of Paul being a little bothered by the idolatry. He is infuriated. His commitment to the one true God of the Bible drove him to anger at man's rebellion against God. And friends, I don't know about you, 
But what is it that you notice when you go into a city around our country or maybe around the world? Are you in awe of the buildings? Are you taking in the culture? Well, there's an aspect where there's an appropriateness to that. But are you captivated by the rampant unbelief, by the, the, the rampant sin displayed all over the place? And how does your spirit deal with that? It's what Paul saw. It's what he felt. He was provoked. But then what does Paul do in Athens? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm provoked, I'm not usually simply going to sit down and talk with people. But that is what God calls us to do. Our anger may be right when we see God ignored and rejected. But we must channel that anger in a godly way so that we can open our mouths and make sense with our words. And that's what Paul ultimately does. He sees the city for what it is, but he has a paradigm that he's working through. He is going through into that city in a way to, to have opportunities to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're told that Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he reasoned in the Agora, the famous marketplace and hub of Athenian life, every other day of the week. And so he's speaking to Jews in the synagogues, and he's speaking, of course, to those who are um, Gentiles in the marketplace primarily. But this was Paul's practice wherever he went. And you can see that throughout the book of Acts. In fact, if you look at chapter 17, again, and look at verse 2, just notice what it says. And Paul went in, as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then, if you jump over to chapter 18 and verse 4, again, he's in a different place, but notice what it says. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The point here is Paul had a message that he needed to communicate not only to Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And he, he does that in what's called a dialogue. This word reason is, is a word that means dialogue. So it wasn't a monologue like I'm doing right now where I'm, I'm preaching and you're listening. It was a dialogue where he went in and he discussed these implications and these truths with those various people. And this method of teaching um, was established in Athens by Plato himself centuries earlier where the, the teacher would instruct through dialogue. So this is what Paul was doing. Now, how did the people respond? And this is ultimately where we want to get to. The, res the people respond, I would say, by curiosity. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And friends, the emphasis in this passage isn't so much on what happened um, with the Jews in the synagogue, but with the philosophers in the marketplace. We have these two groups of people, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were primarily materialists. Um, if we could sum up what their thinking is, it's this, enjoy life now, get what you can now, because this is all you have. 
Stoics were a little bit different. They, they believed that God had dictated the affairs of man, so we ought, to ex- we ought to just accept our destiny. So grin and bear it, because it is what it is. I find myself saying that a lot. It is what it is. So Epicureans emphasized chance and freedom. Live like there is no tomorrow. So in other words, when the leadership of our country says, citizens, there's a pandemic of coronavirus going on, so you need to practice social distance and sheltering in place, if you're an Epicurean, you are heading out to the beach to party with your friends, right? But if you're a Stoic, you emphasize fatalism and self-sufficiency. You just embrace what's happening and you endure life's tragedies and pains. And friend, these two attitudes are present in Athens in a pre-Christian society, but they're no less present today in a post-Christian society. And when it comes to the standing in judgment, Epicureans say, live it up. If I'm going to be judged, I might as well enjoy life to its fullest now. If I'm a Stoic, I'm saying when it comes time for judgment, It is really all out of my hands. God will see how much I faced my troubles and endured and did whatever. I will face whatever is coming to me. Surely he will see that I have done my duty. And as someone who is British would say, keep a stiff upper lip. Now as Paul dialogued with these men, There were two kinds of responses. You see them in the text there. First of all, there were these insults. What does this babbler wish to say? Literally, that word babbler means a seed speaker. It has this picture of a a bird going around and pecking at the ground and picking this food up and this seed up and this little piece up here. They're saying that, that all Paul is doing is taking a little bit from this idea and a little bit from this idea and a little bit from this idea and putting it all together. It was an insult. It was a philosophical, ideological insult. But there's also some confusion. He says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. In other words, he's speaking about a God from another country. But although they questioned Paul's teaching and were confused by some of the things that he says, they are curious to hear more. In particular, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So friends, dialogue has led to curiosity, and that curiosity then leads to an invitation to speak some more. Look at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And there's a little parenthetical statement that is put in there by Luke. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Athens was a very cosmopolitan city. People from all sorts of different places gathered there, and they would love to talk about religion and beliefs and practice, and they would debate about them. And Paul then enters into this world with the message of the gospel, in particular, Jesus and the resurrection. And these people are curious. And their curiosity then begs the question. 
It begs the question, is the resurrection true? Why would Paul preach Jesus and the resurrection if the resurrection wasn't true? Well, if it's not true, then Christianity is a sham. It's a waste of time. The Bible says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if the resurrection is true, if what Paul preached is true, if what Peter preached was true, if what Jesus prophesied about himself is true, then what? Now, how can we know that Jesus rose from the dead? There's really three answers to that question. We could maybe add a few more, but three general answers would be helpful for us now. And the first thing is this. It's the, the testimony of the empty tomb. Friends, the critics and the skeptics and the unbelievers all agree that the tomb was empty. There are very few people in their right mind with the historical facts that we have would say that the tomb was not empty. But the thing is they would come up with different explanations as to why the tomb is empty. And here are some of the things that they say. They say, first of all, that the Roman soldiers stole the body from the tomb. But this makes no sense as they had no reason to do that. In fact, their very lives depended on the fact that his body remained in the tomb. They were stationed at the tomb to prevent the body being stolen. So it doesn't make sense. Secondly, the disciples stole the body. Now friends, this is fake news put out by the Jewish leaders um, who paid people to spread that message abroad. You can look at Matthew chapter 27, verses 63 and following, or uh, chapter 28, verses 11 and following. But friends, it makes no sense. It's, it's not plausible that they would have overpowered the Roman guard at the tomb. They were grieved, and they were weeping, and they were broken by the whole fact that their Savior had died. Then there's this what's called the resuscitation theory or the swoon theory. And this, this theory basically says that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. That he just kind of went into a sleep and he was put in the tomb. And while in the tomb, he woke up and then he got out. And I have to ask yourself a lot of questions there. Then what were the Roman soldiers doing at the crucifixion? Did they not pierce him through to make sure that he was dead? How could someone go through all that kind of torture and suffering and then just a few days later to be able to get up and roll away a huge stone that took multiple people to put in front of that tomb. It just doesn't make any sense. And then of course this last one is the unknown tomb. In other words, when they went to look for Jesus, they went to the wrong tomb. And oh, well see it's empty. Well yeah, they were looking in the wrong tomb. Except scripture is very, very clear that it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that they would have known where it was. So in fact, none of these adequately explain away the empty tomb. If anything, they point to the reality of the empty tomb. And friends, this is important to understand. A lot of people don't, don't know this, but historically, it's not the fact that the, the empty tomb didn't happen. It's that there are these explanations about the empty tomb. So the testimony of the empty tomb is one of the first things we go to. Secondly, the post-resurrection appearances um, of Jesus so this is really, really powerful and I think helpful for us. We find in particular in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 5 through 8 these things. Let me read it. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, that's key, 
most of whom are still alive, that's key, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so we have this, this wonderful um, list of eyewitness testimony of the fact that Jesus appeared post-resurrection to all these people. And, and Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, is emphasizing a couple of things here that these are the people, if you want to go talk to them and find out to see if what I'm saying is true, go talk to them. Some of them are still alive. You can go do that. Now, one of the primary means of establishing facts is the presence of eyewitness testimony. And when the stories of independent witnesses that uh, saw him at the same time, we have over 500 mentioned here, those facts are collaborated, those facts can be accepted, and reality can be established. And therefore, the resurrection can be verified. Now, J.N.D. Anderson, he was a professor and head of the Department of Law at the University of London from 1953 to 1971, says this. He says, the most drastic way of dismissing the evidence would be to say that these stories were mere fabrications, that they were, that they were pure lies. But so far as I know, not a single critic today would take such an attitude. In fact, it would really be an impossible position. Think of the number of witnesses, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women, who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it has ever known, and who even on the testimony of their enemies lived it out in their lives. Think of the psychological, psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence and then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world. That simply won't make sense. So the empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances, then the changed lives of the witnesses, what Anderson mentions leads us into this one. If there was ever a time for the followers to abandon the claims of Jesus, this would be the time. But to those who witness the risen Christ, they are emboldened to witness for him. What changed for Peter um, from denying Jesus three times in a courtyard to preaching boldly at the day of Pentecost and even before the Sanhedrin? What changed James, the, the, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic, who, who, who was not sympathetic to Jesus, but, but as he saw what happened, he believes, and he becomes a significant leader in the Jerusalem church in just a few short years. What about all those who, from all walks of life, men and women, high and low, learned and ignorant, respectable and reprobate, who found Jesus to be their salvation and joy. Friends, the empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances, the changed lives of the witnesses, all are screaming at us that this resurrection truly happened. And we can say this, that, the, that Jesus rose from the tomb is an historical fact. And friends, that's significant for us to understand here as we press on what happens next. Now, some of you may be 
thinking to yourselves, well, if the evidence is so convincing, then why don't more people believe it? I know, it's one of those questions you have and you bang your head against the wall. And you say, look, here are all the facts. Why are you not believing it? Well, the problem is this, that if Jesus is risen, then Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then I have no right to continue to rebel against God by running my life as my own. See, friends, it's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. If Jesus is risen, I must turn from my sin. But I don't want to turn from my sin. I love my sin too much. And so I reject the facts of the resurrection. So friends, so far we've seen how Paul's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection stirred up the curiosity of those listening in the Agora, the marketplace. Now we'll take note of his sermon at the Oropagus. We move now into the preaching of the resurrection. So Paul, having testified in the marketplace, is led into the Oropagus and there he preaches one of the most famous sermons ever preached. Friends, it's a model sermon in particular about how to speak to the skeptic. And it seeks to answer two questions. Who is God and what has God said? So Paul, having been led into the Oropagus, begins to preach. And he, he begins with an introduction. This introduction is really helpful. And we see Paul using two tools to draw his audience in. He's finding common ground, and he's establishing a bridge. Notice, first of all, the common ground. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Well, you don't say. If you walk through this city, you see all these idols all over the place, certainly you understand that they're religious. In today's context, we might better use the word spiritual. It's not a word that is saying, oh, you must be a Christian or you must be a Baptist or something like that. It's kind of a general word that just says you are interested in spiritual things. You care about spiritual things. Now, those things might be the worship of nature, uh, spirit beings, pagan gods, idols, but he's establishing a broad common ground. But then he comes along with a bridge, and here's the bridge. You know, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, this unknown God is one of those idols that they worship. And so he draws in using this bridge. Now, presumably, this was an altar to a God they didn't know, duh. But they didn't know but wanted to worship just in case. There is some historical evidence that in the 6th century BC, the city of Athens had appealed to an unknown god during a time of great plague. And through the sacrifice of some sheep, the plague ended. And so this unknown god, unnamed god, is still worshipped at this time. So Paul skillfully takes something from their culture and belief system and uses it as a means to get talking about God. So who is this God that I'm talking to you about? Who is the God who speaks about Jesus and the resurrection? He is your unknown God, is what Paul is saying. Now let me tell you about him. <laughs> 
That's how he, he draws their attention into his sermon. So who is God? As Paul unpacks a picture of the one true God, notice that he moves from general to specific. First of all, he is the creator, verse 24. He is saying, unlike your many gods who are subject and limited to creation, the true God created the world and everything in it. And unlike your many gods who live in temples, the God that I'm talking about does not live in temples made by hands. He is the creator. He is also the sustainer. This God that I'm presenting to you is in need of no help from man because he is self-sustaining. He is self-sufficient. And subsequently, he sustains man's life, breath, and everything. He's creator. He's sustainer. He is also controller. You might say ruler. It says, this God began the human race in Adam and determined the time and location of the growth of, of nations. He is in control of it all. But he's also the revealer. In other words, God is not so distant that he cannot be known. He has revealed himself if we are willing to look for him. He is an approachable God. Not only is he approachable God, but he is also a personal God. He's not an idol, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So not only is he building a bridge, not only is he getting this kind of this connection to their culture, he's also quoting their poets in reinforcing what he's saying. And verse 29 being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, the two poets that he quotes here are Epimenides and Aretas to make his point. God is personal and we are his offspring, not a in a redeemed sense, but in the fact that God created us. So get this, get this picture. God is not some distant territorial God confined to a temple or a gold, silver, or stone idol made with human imagination. No, He is the creator, the sustainer, the controller, the ruler, the revealing God who is both approachable and personal. This is who this unknown God is. He is the one that is coming with the message of Jesus and the resurrection. So the question now is, what does this God say? Well, notice verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friends, Paul goes uh, on to say here to his hearer that since the resurrection, resurrection is true, then judgment is a certainty. Notice verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection 
from the dead is an assurance that judgment is coming. Now, there's three certainties that we have in verse 31 about the judgment of God. First of all, I want you to notice that there is certainty about the day. There is a certain day. God is appointed. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. There's a court date that has been set in heaven. He has a certain day when he will judge. God has been patient. He's been long-suffering about people's ignorance. The day of reckoning, however, will come, as Hebrews 9, 27 says. Now, friends, every year, all of us who are of age get that dreaded postcard in the mail that says you are summoned to serve as a juror at the Superior Court of California. And if you're in our region, that's usually in Oakland. And when you receive it, you all respond in the same way. It goes like this. I can't believe it. It's not a good time. How can I get out of it? Now, here are some of the frequently asked questions for jury duty. How did I get my name selected for jury duty? May I be excused from jury service? May I postpone my jury service to a convenient time? There is no convenient time. What happens if I'm late? And here's the last one that I like. Can I send my spouse instead? (laughs) Now, friends, this is just for jury duty. You're not on trial. You're just going to serve the country and the state and your local region by serving in jury duty. You don't want to go. You think jury duty is bad. Standing before God in judgment is going to be far worse. God isn't calling you for jury duty, but to stand trial in his presence. And hear this, every name gets selected for judgment. You can't be excused from judgment. You can't postpone your judgment. You won't be late for your judgment, and your spouse can't take your place. But friends, the only way that you can get out of judgment is to have Jesus stand in for you as your substitute. And that's why scripture says, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We aren't condemned, Jesus is condemned in our place. And in order for Jesus to do that, you must be born again. You must have called on Jesus to save you and to forgive you of your sins. You must have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is a certain day and it is coming. This this week, there's a very popular video going out about a pastor who's been talking about it's Friday and these are the things that happened to Jesus on Friday, but he's always saying, and Sunday is coming, and Sunday is coming. And what Paul is saying here is that here is the resurrection, but judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. So there is a certain man. There's also, secondly, a certain standard. Did you notice that? He will judge the world in righteousness. God will judge men in comparison to his 
righteousness. Now, that's not how we typically like to be judged, is it? We love to be judged by all the people around us. And we say to ourselves, well, if we look at everyone around us, I'm pretty good. I don't beat my children. Be quiet, Adam. I, I am faithful to my wife. I pay my taxes. We think, hey, we're all sinners. We're all in this together. We all make mistakes. Friends, God doesn't judge on a curve. He judges us by a standard, and that standard is His righteousness. That standard is His holiness. That standard is His glory, not my own. And compared to that, I will always come up short and miss the mark. That's what Scripture says. If I measure myself based on the Ten Commandments, I will fail. Psalm 130 and verse 3 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one. So His holiness, His righteousness is the standard by which we will be judged. So not only is there a certain day, a certain standard, but there's also a certain man. Now we usually think of God as the judge, not man. People have this distorted idea that, you know, there's this wrathful God of the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The problem is we often then think of judgment as God being there present at judgment. But let's, let's ask ourselves the question, is that true? And what we'll find is that the man that's being talked about here is the, the man with a capital M. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so what we need to do is we need to go to John chapter 5 and read verses 22 through 27. And this is what it says. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority, get this, to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Now, friends, hear this. We think that it's going to be God that is the one that is going to be judging us, but ultimately it's going to be Christ. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, will be the judge of every man and every woman. And eternal life or eternal death will be his sentence. So since the resurrection is true and the judgment is a certainty, friends, there needs to be a right response to this God. Now let's think now about the response to the resurrection. Paul's sermon began with ignorance, ignorance about the unknown God. Paul's sermon now ends with ignorance, that God has been patient to overlook the ignorant and to grant forgiveness to all who repent. 
He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So friends, we can rightly say this, and this is really the the, the essence of this text. Since the resurrection is true and judgment is a certainty, then repentance is necessary. Let me say that again. Since the resurrection is true and judgment is a certainty, then repentance is necessary. That's found in chapter 17, verse 30. Do you see how throughout this text, Jesus and the resurrection are the key to a right standing with God? It isn't just the the resurrection is a fact of history. It isn't just that the, the, the resurrection is a fulfillment of prophecy or it's also the, the basis of our judgment. And God has given assurance about the reality of the judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. So what Paul is saying is this, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead is screaming to mankind that there is a coming judgment. So prepare for that judgment. And the only way you can be prepared is to humble yourself in repentance before the God of the universe, the creating, sustaining, controlling, approachable, personal God. Now, friends, this is is weighty, isn't it? And the question we have to ask ourselves then is this, what is repentance? Well, repentance, first of all, is not simply feeling regret about my life. It is not kicking off the bad habits of my life. But repentance is, first of all, a turning from sin and self to Jesus. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a change in a person's life. So you get this idea of a turning, a change, a whole change. The idea of repent means to turn completely around. So if I was driving down uh, I-5 to L.A. and I repented, I would be turning around and coming back to the Bay Area. That's the idea of repentance. I like what Wayne Grudem says here as a definition. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So it's only through repentance that a slave to sin becomes a slave to Christ. Friends, repentance and faith always go hand in hand. It was repentance and belief. They're like two sides of the same coin of conversion. You must turn to God by faith, from your blindness and unbelief, but then also you turn away from sin and toward Christ. So it's turning to Christ, it's turning away from your sin. Now the question here is this, has Paul preached his sermon? He's finished his sermon. Now, how did the people respond to his sermon? Well, they respond in much the same way that people respond to sermons today. Let's just look at what it says here. And the first response is this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, we have to understand that some of the Greek ideology rejected resurrection. But with all the facts and the proofs and the evidence and the clarity, there will always be those who will not believe. I mean, they just will not believe. They're blinded by their belief systems, by their worldview. They're not willing to change. 
the pursuit of their sinful pleasures, and anyone or anything that gets in the way of that is mocked, is ridiculed, is rejected. That tends to be the popular mantra of today. Still, those who mock in unbelief will often try to circumvent things by repackaging a God of their own making that is totally embracing of their sinful lifestyle and pursuits. And sadly, so much of American uh, culture, as well as even the church in America, has that kind of attitude. So if we love our sin, we create a God that doesn't care about our sin. But such attempts, friends, fall short because God's standard of righteousness and holiness doesn't change. Mocking unbelief. Secondly, thoughtful consideration. Others said, we will hear you again about this. Now, their thoughtful consideration may have been genuine. We must recognize that. They may have thought, you know, I'm perked, I'm interested, this is, this is new, I'll listen to you again. But it may also have been procrastination. And as the passage seems to indicate, it is likely that they never did hear again because Paul went out from their midst. He declared Jesus and the resurrection, but now he's gone. <laughs> and the opportunity to hear him again has just disappeared. Friends, it's possible that there are some who are listening to the sermon today who have heard the truth about Jesus and the resurrection before. You know that the scriptures predict his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You know that Jesus, while with his disciples, predicted his death, burial, and resurrection. You've seen the proof. You don't deny it, but you keep kicking the can of belief down the road. And friends, today is the day of salvation. You do not know what tomorrow holds for you. If there's any time in the history of our world right now, we would recognize that we don't know what tomorrow holds. I mean, here we are, sheltered in place. We would not have expected this six months ago. We couldn't have conceived of it. We don't know what tomorrow will bring so don't allow your thoughtful consideration to be procrastination and ultimately miss out because you're not willing to take seriously the implication of the resurrection. So we have mocking unbelief, thoughtful consideration, and then we have genuine faith. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we have here a prominent man, one of the people who are part of the Areopagite um, gathering. We have a woman, which is significant here, and we have many others. Now, for those who believe in the gospel, who repent of their sins and embrace Jesus as uh, Jesus and the resurrection, there is a new and profound hope. You see, they now have new life, eternal life. They now have a new family, the church, the body of Christ. They now have a new and certain future, that is heaven. They now have a new outlook on life that says God is completely in control. He is the Lord. He's the master. Therefore, I can have joy in the midst of my trouble because I know that I am, I am to live my life for his glory and that he has it all in hand. 
They now have a new comforter, the Holy Spirit, who is with them, who uses the Word of God and ministers to them. They now have a new purpose to glorify God in all they do rather than glorifying self. They now have the living, breathing Word of God to guide them. And they now have a spiritual pursuit, and that is to be more and more like Christ. You see, when we believe in the gospel, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are the recipients of a gift, eternal life. And you know what it's like at Christmas or a birthday. You get a gift and it has your name on it and you open up and you see what's in there. There's a sense in which this gift of eternal life is not just eternal life. You open the box and there's so many other things contained in that box for you. These are all implications of believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in embracing what Jesus Christ has done for you by dying on the cross, by going to that tomb and rising again and, and proving that he has power over death. Friends, this is a gift for all of us. Now, friends, as we draw things to a close, I want us to draw our attention to verse 27 where we read the following words. He, that is God, is actually not far from each one of us. I mean, let, let that expression, let that statement just kind of settle as you sit and as you think and as you ponder what we have thought through about the resurrection. Somehow, in some way, God is present with us. He is around us. He is near us. And the implications then of this statement really are twofold. First of all, God is omnipresent, which means He exists everywhere. It's a big theological word that means He exists everywhere. So you and I cannot get away from Him. We can't fly away from His presence. We can't go into the closet and hide. He's everywhere. Secondly, not only is he omnipresent, but he is near. And the idea of near means that there, there, is this, there is the reality that he can be found. Now, he's not like hiding everywhere. This morning, I have declared to you this one who is Jesus Christ, who was who came to this earth, who died, was buried, and rose again. I'm showing you. He's here. He, he's, he's graspable. I want to end this morning with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I mean, what's a sermon without a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, right? He says this, If God is not far from each of us, then how hopeful is your seeking of him? If I seek God and he is not far from me, I will surely find him. I do not have to climb to heaven to dive in or, die, or to dive into the abyss, for he is near. When I sit or stand, I may come to him. It is written, if you seek him, he will be found by you. And again, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. My friends, many people look at Paul's sermon 
and they say, he really failed. All these people mocking, all these people saying, you know, we'll consider another time. It's just a, a few people that believed. The reality is, friends, it's not the masses that come to Christ. They are the few who are the true believers. Masses follow when people are, are somehow pointing them to something that's sensational and all that kind of stuff. But when we're faced with the truth of the gospel, there are hard things that we need to consider. That we are the ones who are desperate because of our sinful condition. And that without Jesus Christ, we are without hope. And when Jesus came to this earth, he came with the specific purpose to go to Jerusalem and to hang on that cross and to, to uh, experience not only the, the assault of man, but the assault from the Father by virtue of his wrath poured out on his shoulders for our sin. And friends, it's not, a, it's not a shameful thing necessarily to say I'm a sinner because that's the reality of your condition. It's my condition. It's your condition. We are all doomed because of our sinfulness. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, by dying on the cross, paying for our sin, and by proving that to be true by virtue of the resurrection, we can move from being sinners entangled in our sin, enslaved to sin, to being liberated and alive. In other words, a resurrection takes place in us and we, we rise up out of our sinfulness, having been forgiven to newness of life, living with Him as our Lord and Savior, living with His Word as our guide and the Holy Spirit present working in us. And we are able then to rejoice, to face life struggles. But more importantly, we are welcomed into His family and we have the confidence and certainty of heaven. Friends, there's a hope that is present for all who believe. Now, the assurance we're given in this passage is the assurance that there is going to be a judgment. But the hope that we get is that those who embrace this reality that judgment is coming and repent of their sins and are forgiven are welcomed, welcomed by Christ. They're set free because of what He has done. Let us rejoice in Him today. He is risen, my friends. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you, Lord, that you sought us out and you stirred our hearts. And Lord, you put in us a passion and a hunger for you. And Lord, as you came to this earth and you died, and Lord, as you were buried and as you rose again, Lord, you demonstrated us to us the certainty of this reconciliation that you accomplished for us on the cross. And Lord, this morning, I know that people are listening and they may have come and been somewhat confused as to what the gospel is and why all this, this, this hoopla over our resurrection. But for, for, Lord, we just ask that you would bring clarity that they would be able to connect the dots between the facts and the implications and that they would see themselves as men and women who will one day have to stand before you. And Lord, they can either choose to stand before you by themselves 
or they can stand before you having an advocate, having a substitute in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit and your word and the seed of the gospel to go forward and, Lord, to take root into the lives of those who are listening. Would you be glorified today? Would we as your children be encouraged, not be distraught, but be reminded that the power of the resurrection is the same power that will help us not only live today, but will usher us into eternity in heaven with you. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. God bless you, my friends.